over it, bitch. It's me. It's all me. It's all episode. Fucking you. Jeez, I was trying to start, you big bitch. bitch. Episode 109. You look tired. Are you sleepy, Chrissy? <laughs> Chrissy? Chrissy, are you sleepy? Uh, welcome to I'm Sorry What the Podcast. I'm Amanda. That's Christina. She's going to take a little nap while I intro the whole thing. Um, we just recorded 108, so there's not a lot of new news. Listen, but... when this will post, I'll have flown back to Minnesota, gone to a wedding, and then driven yeah. back to a bro Ohio, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then I'll be back at work in my brother's basement. <laughs> bro Ohio is another podcast I like. Oh, yeah. Just so you know. <laughs> cool. Awesome. Great. Sweet. Uh, good job. Thanks. I love that for me. What? What? I feel like we should get a TikTok, but I also don't want to keep up with a TikTok. Here's the thing. I should probably start keeping up with other social medias even better. I did re-download Twitter, so now it's just like re-signing in. Fucking A. Justin says we should have it, and he's right, but I hate it. I hate it. <sighs> But anyway. that's okay. It's fine. It's fine. Everything's fine. Everything's uh, fine. So uh, what's up? How you doing? I'm good. Anything new? No. In the last seven minutes. Okay. Well, I, pe- I-, I peeled off my toenail polish. Good for you. Good for you. That's very oh, exciting. Good for you. I'm, I'm happy for you. Did you, did you do another story for, for today? No. Oh, well, bye. <laughs> It's the same joke we tell every time. I, don't I know, and you guys hate it probably, but it's fucking hate it, hate it, hate it. Tell me the story. Okay, I don't have a name for this one, but I'm just gonna, I'm gonna go in. It's an axe murder one. Okay, good. I'm glad it's not a, a kid one because mine. I mean, it might be. Sweet. Um, All right. It's an axe murder one, and you're gonna be like, I know this story, but you don't because it's not the same story you think about. Yeah, you don't. You don't. Okay. <laughs> So west of Lafayette, Louisiana, um, there's a city called Crowley. And on February 11th, 1911, homicide investigators found the dead bodies of Walter J. Byers, his wife, and their young son lying in bed with their skulls split open. Jeez. Really just Uh, jumping right in, huh? Jumping right in. Uh, The bed was drenched in blood. There were bloody footprints speckled across the floor. The doors were locked, indicating that the killer had come in through a window and murdered the family while they slept. There was a bucket of blood in one corner and the head and at the head of the bed, just above the bastion bodies was the bloody ax used in the murder. I don't know why, but the bucket of blood really grosses me out. Like you yes. just gathered it. Yep. Ugh. The local newspaper called it the most brutal murder in the history of the section, this section, but it was just one of the ax slings that would terrify parts of Louisiana and Texas in the early 1910s. Mm-hmm. So less than two weeks later, in on the morning of February 24th, 1911, Nina Martin entered her home in Lafayette, Louisiana, when her son uh, burst into the kitchen and said that Nina's sister and brother-in-law had been murdered. Nina rushed over to her sister's home, which was next door, and found Alexandra or Alexander Andros and his wife Mimi um, wrote along with their son, Jacques. <laughs> J-O-A-C-H-I-M. Joaquin and daughter Agnes were found murdered. 
Just like in the buyer's case, the murder weapon was an axe and it was found at the foot of the family's bed. So they're just leaving it. Mm-hmm. Okay. The article included other shocking facts, um, some of which were probably provided by the sheriff's office. Uh, the ne- newspaper noted that the Andrus family had been killed by the slept probably sometime after midnight. And then uh, Alexander and Mimi had been moved after death with the killer putting them in a kneeling position pr- bes- beside the bed. They appeared to be praying. I don't like that. So yeah. Sheriff Lacoste, which was the sheriff in Lafayette and his men suspected that the murder of the Andrews family was also the killer of the Byers family. Better yet, um, he named a, in the article, he was named, they named their primary suspect, which was a recently escaped lunatic named Gar- Garson Godfrey. Garson. Garson. However, the next killing occurred outside of Louisiana. On March 22nd, 1911, uh, Louis Cassaway and his family and their three children suffered the same awful fate as the Anderson Byers family. They were mercilessly bludgeoned with, to death with an axe. As similar to the murder of the Cassaway family, um, seemed to the previous crimes, there were some major differences that caught investigators by surprise. Um, first of all, they lived in San Antonio, Texas. Um, all of the previous victims had been black. One of the victims in this case Mrs. Cassaway was white, so then they initially convinced, thought that it was detectives that hate, that the killer had a hatred of mixed race couples, but the other couples were all black, so it was, so that, yeah, right, okay, so after the murder of the Cassaways, Sheriff Lacoste had a new suspect in the form of a man named Raymond Barnabet. Barnabet was a petty criminal and a sharecropper who lived in Lafayette, he had a long rap sheet and was known to have a violent temper, so they arrested him um, when his mistress approached police and told them that Raymond had confessed to committing murders during one of their frequent quarrels. Okay. So in the autumn of 1911, Raymond Barnabet was stood trial in Louisiana for the murders of the three families. Zephyrin and Clementine Barnabet, Raymond's own children, testified against their father. But while on the witness stand, Clementine told a graphic story about how her father came home one night covered in blood. Zephyrin seconded this story and he went one step further by claiming that Raymond had announced one night that he had killed the whole damn Andrus family. Well, all right. Seems so a, a little damning, a little damning. Right. So however, in October of 1911, a Louisiana jury convicted Raymond Barnabet of murder, but in October 27th of 1911, so in the beginning of October, he was convicted. Okay. And then in the end of October, he was granted a new trial because Raymond had been drunk throughout the entire trial, which called into question his testimony. The jury had failed to follow the judge's instructions during deliberation, and the prosecution had never even bothered to offer a motive for the murders. Okay. So in November this of- kind of seems like, okay, this kind of seems like a shit show trial. It was. Like basically. just in general, not one side or the other, both sides are a little fucked. Yes. Okay. So in November of 1911, he was let go because another murder proved his innocence. He was still in jail and another murder occurred. Dude, there were so many axe murders back then. Mm-hmm. So on November 27th, 1911, the bodies of Norbert Randall and his wife Azima and their four children were found murdered inside of their cabin located on Lafayette Street. Like the others, eight-year-old Albert, six-year-old Renee, five-year-old Norbert, and two-year-old Agnes had been beaten to death with the blunt side of an axe. Norbert had been shot in the head before he too was brained with an axe, and as per usual, the murder weapon was found at the crime scene, although police discovered that this axe had been partially washed. Okay. 
So the slaying of the Randall family sent the citizens of Lafayette into a panic. Rumors circulated that the Randall children had been mutilated by their killer. Um, over 150 people met at the Good Hope Baptist Church in Lafayette. The meeting uh, reminded citizens to sleep with weapons nearby. It also demanded action from the police. Basically, everyone in the town was like, you need to go and look at other members of the Barnabit family. Right. So when police returned to the Barnabit family home they, to search for new evidence, they found several sets of bloody clothes belonging to 17-year-old Clementine. The specific Clementine. Ob- Clementine. The specific objects of horror. Objects of horror. I copied and pasted that for sure. Uh, <laughs> I pulled that out of something for show. Um, I like so, it. I like it. I like it. Not my writing. So knows. So everybody knows. <laughs> so the what they found was a suit of women's clothing covered in blood and brain matter, blood. And blood on the door leading to Clementine's room. I don't like that visual. Mm-mm. Okay. So once that was found, it was funny because they were adamant that they searched the Barnabit home. And then once they searched the Barnabit home, people were wouldn't didn't want to believe that a 17-year-old woman would carry out such gruesome crimes. So Clementine was arrested, though, and sent to the same Lafayette, Lafayette Parish jail as her husband or as her father. Okay. Then in January of 1912, the Brossard family, which is the grocers that the Axemen of New Orleans. Yes. Okay. Yep. So the father, Felix, his wife, and their three children were ambushed by a mad killer. The crime scene was the most shocking of all. It not only suggested that Louisiana was the home of a crazy serial murderer, but also a serial murderer who appeared to know a thing or two about the occult because it was um, the murdered Brossard children had their blood drained into buckets left at the end of their beds a message written maybe no this wasn't the axman this was a different one um i sorry i went through a lot of them a message written in blood was left on one of the home's walls and it read when he maketh the inquisition for blood he forgetteth not the cry of the humble for decades um that inscription had been cited as coming from Psalms 9 12 from the king james bible bible however the king king's james bible actually reads when he maketh inquisition for blood, he remembereth them. He forgetteth not the cry of the humble. Uh, the biblical t- quotation left behind at the Brossard's crime scene was actually taken from the novel Uncle Tom's Cabin, Uncle which was original, which had m- originally misquoted the verse. Um, other facts of the Brossard crime scene were soon sensationalized. Um, basically, one of the El Paso Herald in Texas called the murders a sacrifice. And noted that the youngest victims had been found with their fingers splayed and secured with five pieces of paper and pins. So they were splayed like this. Gross. And the words human five were found scribbled on the crime scene as well. The newspapers basically blamed voodoo worshipers for the murders. So the way they had their hands splayed, it kind of makes me think of when you like pin down bugs and you pin pin their uh, wings down so you can see them. Yeah, that's what I So thought of despite being behind bars and in jail at the time clementine confessed to having a hand in these killings as well um, her demeanor and behavior was deemed odd by investigators she was super calm super like it is what it is basically about being in jail um, and also claimed that she was resp- responsible for more murders than the public knew about 
She ultimately confessed her involvement in the murder of 35 people between 1911 and 1912. 17 of these victims were reportedly murdered by Clementine herself as part of her. Wait, sorry. what? No, I'm just like, she's 17, huh? Mm hmm. Gross. As part of her confession, Clementine claimed that she belonged to the secret cult known as the Church of Sacrifice. This cult and its secretive human five gang were supposedly part of the Christ sanctified Holy Church, an evangelical church headed by a man named King Harrison. The church could be found all along the Southern Pacific Railroad, and according to Clementine's confession, Harrison encouraged his congregation to use, use lethal discipline use lethal discipline against any wayward members. Clementine said that the Randalls were an example of such backsliding. On top of all of this, she also told Louisiana authorities that she was a voodoo sorceress who enjoyed supernatural protection from punishment. Sounds a little off a rocker. Uh, (laughs) Maybe. Uh, Sheriff LaCosta and others investigated Clementine's claims, but came up empty in almost every instance. Um, They basically categorized her as a moral pervert because she admitted to caressing some of the corpses after killing them and believe that most of the murders Clementine admitted to were copycat crimes. Hold on. She murdered these people, and they're going to, like, highlight the fact that she caressed them. Like, that's, he's, she's an immoral pervert. For caressing a dead body. For caressing the, the person After she, she just unalived killed. somebody. <laughs> um, oh, my gosh. Unalived. <laughs> After her confession, Clementine was examined by several doctors, most of whom deduced that she was perfectly sane. And due to the severity of her crimes, Clementine was sent to the infamous Angola State Penitentiary near Louisiana State Capital, Baton Rouge. Um, On July 31st of 1913, she tried to escape from prison, but was captured by officers on the same day. However, the escape attempt was basically forgotten uh, and she was given a job of cane cutter, which meant Clementine was allowed to work outside with minimal observation. And then five years later, on Saturday, August 28th, Clementine was allowed to leave Angola due to years of good behavior. Clementine. So, unfortunately, after Clementine's story circulated around the Southeast, many white citizens began to suspect that their Black neighbors belonged to the murderous sacrifice church. And it led to a handful of violent encounters and false arrests. And it also... It kind of put the stigma. This case is what put the stigma of voodoo being like always evil. Um, Strangely, though, there was more than one set of axe murderers terrifying Louisiana around the same time. Nearby, the murders of the infamous axemen of the New Orleans tormented locals in the late 1910s. The killings have never been solved. And several decades earlier, a killer sometimes called the Servant Girl Annihilator committed several axe murders in 1880s in Austin, Texas. Crimes that have never been solved either. And (laughs) experts aren't sure if all of these murders are connected, which brings us to the man on the train, Mm -hmm. which um, in their, in the book, the man on the train, they actually claim that Clementine was innocent and it was all of the murders were committed by the man on the train. They had a guy that was riding the rails and killing and hopping back on. Yes. Yep. And that is my Axeman murders. Dude, I have been so into like unsolved things as mm-hmm. of late. I don't know why, just have been. And uh, it's just so interesting. Because the Axeman murder, the man on the train is also thought to have created or done the Hydrofac murders too. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that's, that's one that I find very interesting. Mm-hmm. Ah, good jobs. Thanks. I, I had not heard of all of that 
that little facet of the well, axe murderers of that time. And not only is it weird, but it's weird that it is a 17-year-old female because normally females are not violent killers. They're it's more like poison or right crimes of passion as opposed to like serial murder. Right. It's more and if they are doing something women are usually much more calculated mm-hmm. so they don't get caught as fast they're not you know it's just so well and it was funny it's funny that she her dad got arrested for it she testified against her father but then she also murdered another person which basically made her father to make it so that it showed that he didn't do it because right. he's in he's in custody right now right so yeah it's weird I don't know what to think about all of that. Uh, all right. Good job. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm trying to clap gently so you can kind of hear it on the mic without overwhelming. Interesting. interesting. That didn't sound like clapping. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like banging. Oh, my God um let's have fun while we can okay because i'm about i'm about to bring it down oh no oh no you're gonna hate everything about this i'm just letting you know i'm so excited tell me more but it's one of those things that it needs to be shared because so it doesn't happen again okay so we learn from it right um so i'm gonna tell you about the death of dylan groves have you ever heard of it it's very recent then maybe not um so jessica and daniel groves lived in ohio with their 14 year old son i know i read it and i was like "Ooh, now i have to tell it (laughs) (laughs) uh jessica was a lpn what i think i do know about this sorry continue yeah it's it's a i read an article about it when it first was coming to fruition Mm -hmm. and then i was reminded of it by something popped up I think on my like snapchat or something mm-hmm. and I read it again and I was like "Ooh, okay um was well she was an LPN so she was a licensed uh practical nurse right that's what it is practicing, uh, practicing nurse well basically she wasn't an RN but she was right under that where she could work at like yeah the old people homes and stuff and help with that sort of thing mm-hmm. um and Daniel didn't really have much of a career, it seems like. I couldn't find anything that was like his his thing that he did regularly, right? Okay. Either way, neither of them had really worked since 2018. Um, at some point, they began doing some hard drugs. Again, they kind of tested positive for all sorts of things. Meth. Um, what is what is the other? Crack cocaine. Yeah, but they're... Oh, Heroin. heroin heroin was another one I'm like are you trying to like balance yourself out or what um so anyway so they started doing hard drugs and Jessica got pregnant oh good oh great she never wanted went to the doctor throughout her pregnancy so no one really knows exactly how the pregnancy went what shape she was in how the baby was Mm -hmm. until that until she actually gave birth Mm -hmm. um there's this is their second child Dylan who was born on January 10th of 2019 uh, after Jessica showed up at the hospital already in labor they're like okay you're in labor uh the staff said that she was clearly 
high, like out of her mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and seemed to barely even be in any pain. She just kept saying things like, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. Um, very disconnected and off and like sporadic with her movements and stuff, which is why mm-hmm. they figured she was on something because she wasn't like moaning or whining about pain. It was just like, oh, oh boy. Um, when they asked her questions, she wouldn't say anything. Uh, they had asked her to take a urine sample to see what she was on for medications and drugs and whatnot, because in order to give her any sort of sedative during birthing, they had to know what they could give her because if she was mm-hmm. high on something, they didn't want to overdose her. Um, and they didn't want the baby to lose oxygen because of an overdose of right. medications. So they ended up actually having to cath her, like catheter her in order to get a urine sample because she refused to go to the bathroom when they were trying to give her a urine sample. It's just a lot of like weird things where I'm like, wow, you're something else lady. Um, Once they were able to take, take her back and check her, she was already 10 centimeters dilated and she wasn't even acting like she was in pain. Oh, she was like high as fuck. Yeah. Yeah. So she was in active later labor. um, And it was a very fast delivery once she started pushing. Okay. Um, Dylan was born addicted of course and was kind of gray in color so he was very not he wasn't didn't have the right nutrients in him Mm -hmm. when he was born and he had the shakes obviously because he was born addicted um so they put him on Jessica's chest to get some skin-to-skin contact right after he was born because he you need that um as a baby if you're able to you should do that and she just didn't seem interested at all like she just kind of laid there like she didn't Mm -hmm. interact with the baby she didn't even respond to him being there um so he got put into the NICU Mm -hmm. um for five days withdrawing off of drugs basically so he would go into sweats and seizures and whatever you name it it was in her system basically um and he had to be put on oxygen because he, he was just in really rough shape, we'll say. Right. Uh, the staff testified that neither of the parents ever asked for them to bring Dylan into the room to see him. Um, one of the nurse said that she brought him into the room and Jessica basically was like, well, you can put him over there. Uh. It's just, I'm so like flabbergasted by this couple. So a couple days after his birth, they called Daniel, the dad, for an interview um, and give him a urine test, which he passed because they wanted to make sure that there was some form of like human in Dylan's Mm -hmm. life that was going to be responsible. So he's clean according to the urine test. They basically tell him that they want to reunite him with his son, but he needs to stay clean for this amount of time. And this is when children and family services gets involved. Mm -hmm. Uh, They find a foster parent for Dylan, whose name is Andrea uh, she's 41 and well, she was 41 at the time and she was a teacher for 18 years. She was married and had an adult son. So she was like just doing it out of the goodness of her heart. Cause she was one of those teachers that saw way too many, right. Too many bad situations that she wishes she could have helped. Um, so they call her and ask if she's able to take a baby who was born addicted and she was at work when they called and she accepted. And by that end of that day, this is like, makes my heart melt. By the end of that day, by calling her friends and her husband and stuff, they had everything they needed for a newborn baby. 
they had gotten together a crib and because it's a foster situation mm-hmm. so she doesn't have all of it until she knows what's going to be coming home with her if it's a right. kid or a baby and so I'm like oh that's just so nice um at six that night she went to do a training on helping an addicted baby mm-hmm. and then brought Dylan home after that she took 12 days off of work and she said I would have taken as long as I needed to in order to help Dylan as much as I could Mm -hmm. um and Dylan she said that Dylan would have tremors and always wanted to be held obviously because he just wanted the comfort Mm -hmm. and constantly was sweating just was like a sweaty mess of a baby poor thing I just feel so bad um Jessica and Daniel came to the house for a visit because that's part of the fostering Mm -hmm. thing since they're trying to reunite them um came to the house for a visit about a week after uh Andrea had gotten Dylan and Andrea said that she sat with them for about five minutes and then she went to the next room to give them some space to bond with their baby and be Mm -hmm. you know just not be hovering over top of them but she said that she could tell that Jessica was on something that she was moving in a weird way her speech had a weird pattern to it she goes Mm -hmm. I could just tell that she was on something So as soon as they left, she called children and family services and reported that Jessica was on substances more than likely. Um, Even with that, though, a few days later, Andrea calls back to figure out when they were going to come visit again, because I guess according to what I was reading, parents have the right right off the bat to visit once a week, at least when they're trying to situate it so that they can go back to the parents. Mm -hmm. So she called in order to set up the next meeting. They basically just told her, hey, yeah, the father is going to actually pick Dylan up on Monday. She was just like, what? Which was only a couple days later. So she only had him for 12 days, not even two weeks. Uh... Um, So he just kept passing his drug tests. So they're like, we can't necessarily say that he can't have Dylan. The caveat is that she could not live in the house with them until she had done her parenting classes and treatment and whatever. So that was the deal is Jessica wasn't supposed to be in the house. She could visit, but she couldn't live there if Dylan was in the house until she did her Mm -hmm. due diligence showing that she's trying to change. Um, So Andrea met with Daniel and gave him the copies of the pictures that she had taken of Dylan over that 12 days and his blanket that he had become attached to and Andrea was just heartbroken she said she wanted to just keep him because she knew it wasn't a good place that he was going Mm -hmm. to but she had no say in it um Andrea gave her gave Daniel uh her cell phone and was like if you need anything if you need me to take him whatever you know just let me know she's like I don't want to step over my boundaries but I wanted him to know that I'm there if he needed me Mm-hmm. Um, and from that, she never heard from them again. By May 3rd, so he was born in February. By May 3rd, the family was no longer checking in and seemed to be no be nowhere. They could not find them. They weren't checking into family services. They weren't um following up with like the paperwork they were supposed to do, the meetings they were supposed to do, and mm-hmm. <sighs> um, so Uh, children and family services called the cops to do a check they went out to the house and knocked on the door but nobody answered and nobody picked up the phones after a few weeks of that 
um, and no communication. Jessica and Daniel are seen on four wheelers in the wooded area near where their home was. So they're like, okay, they're there. They're just not answering or whatever. Finally, on June 10th, so almost a whole month later, right? Um, they were able to get a search warrant in order to force entry into the house, mm-hmm. which I you would think would be faster than that when it comes to the life of a baby. Yeah, that's where I'm like confused as to why that wasn't given the day after they didn't answer for the cops. Mm-hmm. But whatever, I can't do anything about it. But not right now, at least. <laughs> Someday, maybe. Um, so they got the warrant for forced entry. They kicked in the door and Jessica was in the house. So they had already knocked and stuff. Nobody was answering. Jessica was there. Isn't supposed to be there first off. She was only mm-hmm. supposed to be visiting on her once a week until she did her thing, just like in the foster system. Um, and she was arrested instantly because she wasn't supposed to be there. And then Daniel barricaded himself into the house, into one of the rooms and had a six hour standoff before they finally got him out of that room. Um, and he was arrested, obviously, because, mm-hmm. hi, um, they both wouldn't talk. The police kept asking them where baby Dylan was, and they both said they just didn't know. They don't what know. their other kid? They don't know. The 14, 15-year-old? Oh, I didn't know that's how old they were. Yeah. No, they're older. They, uh, he was 14 when D- Dylan was born, okay. and he was 15 when, like, trial happened later on, and okay. he testified. Um, they put them into separate interview rooms and Jessica says that they were very aggressive and rude with her, calling her names and threatening her quote. He called me a fucking bitch and threatened to split my wig. And I just hollered, do it, do it. And he said, I fucking would you fucking bitch, but I have this badge like that. No. Okay. Nice try. Um, I mean, I'd probably want to say that to her too, Mm -hmm. but I don't think that happened. Especially since most of them are recorded. Exactly. Um, Eventually, Daniel says that they found, said that they found Dylan dead in his crib and they didn't know what happened to him. And they put the body in some place, which ended up not being the place because they went to go find it and it wasn't there. Um, So obviously he had lied. So they go to get them again for more questioning, right? So, well, not get them, but pull them out for more questioning. So uh, the investigators put the two of them in a room together mm-hmm. after they like wouldn't say anything. And the two started talking to each other super low, like you can't hear it in the recordings of them in there, but like they had the amplified version that they were listening to while they were sitting in there. Mm-hmm. And to each, they said something about I didn't tell them where the Daniel says something about I didn't tell them where the body was and Jessica also was like yeah me neither they whispered and it was just so low like you could barely hear it but just enough to catch like integral parts of the conversation Mm -hmm. after a lot more questioning Daniel ends up spilling where the body is okay um they Played them against each other as usual. They were like, oh, well, Jessica's telling us stuff and she's saying it was all you. So uh, if that's not the right story, then you should probably tell us what's going on. Uh, Daniel tells them that they put Dylan in a well, a spring fed well. Daniel had, which is a little bit different than like a dugout well. Okay. Um, Daniel had said that 
he used to hunt in the area with a couple of his hunting dogs and they had fallen in the well and drowned because so they knew about the wells because of his hunting dogs drowning in the wells so that's how they found out about them because it was like a natural aquifer well um yeah so i just uh, okay now we're gonna get into i don't want to say trigger warning because i feel like that's weird but like be aware just know that this is gonna get this is the stuff that gave me nightmares when I was researching this. Um, the police had called the fire department to come attempt to suck the water out of the well, but because it was spring fed, it just kept refilling. Mm-hmm. So then they had to go fishing, as they called it, and they used a large hook to drop down to the bottom of the well and kind of moved it around until it hooked something to pull out, right? Um, when they pulled it up, there were a couple of milk crates that were like wired together with zip ties, wires, chains. It was like pull, just kind of tied together. And they put it to the side. The investigator started taking pictures of it, not thinking too much of it, like trying to just clean out whatever is in there. Maybe it was something else. And then the smell of rotting flesh hit them. Oh. Um, they take the crate and its contents back to the lab to open it. And it's full of rocks. And there in the middle of all the rocks is Dylan's little body (gasps) wrapped up in layers upon layers of saran wrap. Yeah, and duct tape. Um, The autopsy showed that that he was about four months old when he died. So it wasn't long after they regained custody of him that whatever happened happened to him. They've never actually said what happened to him. I'm sorry, I'm like shaking. He had a large skull fracture, broken ribs, broken legs and arms, and tested positive for meth. So they were like shooting him up. I don't know. He was four months. He wouldn't have gotten into it. He can't even crawl yet. He's four months. Unfortunately. I'm sorry. I'm just like, they go to trial. I'm just, that was like, I didn't want to go any deeper. That's what I know. They go into trial and the son slash the brother of Dylan, who was 15 now, testified that his dad was having him pee into cups for him. <gasps> get drug tested. Yeah. He also said that at one point, his baby brother had a black eye and like a scrape on his head. And when he asked his mom about it, she said that a mobile had fallen onto him and he got tangled into it in the crib. And so, you know, being the brother who they never say his name because he's a minor, being the brother he's like okay well mom says that this happened like all right because she he never actually witnessed anything violent yeah violent acts on him uh daniel the dad testified that he had seen jessica hitting dylan in the head jessica also testified and she said oh it was so okay i actually i'm gonna play a little clip of the her testimony um once I get to it and then I got to pull it up. So you might have to cut out a little bit Mm -hmm. of a time lapse because I forgot to pull it up before this, but okay. So she just, she's just the worst. She's the fucking worst. So she like fake cried and whined and asked. And when asked what she had done to Dylan, she would say things like it was an accident. And then when the prosecutor would push further and be like, no, tell us what happened. Even if it was an accident, what happened? I didn't ask for your excuse. I asked you what happened. I don't remember. And then the prosecutor at one point said something like, if you don't remember, then how do you know it was an accident? And then Jessica and the prosecutor had this like back and forth yelling thing. Um, So (laughs) let me just pull this up quick. Give me me a one second. 
to be from dropping him. How did you cause that complete upper arm fracture? Nothing that I ever did was intentional. I'm not asking for your excuse. How did you cause that complete upper arm fracture? Tell the jury. I have to live with this for the rest of Answer my question. life. How did you cause that? You complete? have devoured Ms. my family. Ms. Rose, Ms. Rose, you answered the questions that are asked of you. You understand? I've admitted to my guilt. How did you? And I have to live How without my children. I'm done talking to you. You are talking to me because you're sitting on the witness stand. Tell me how you call that injury. <laughs> I, I'm like, she's just doing what everybody else wants to do. But she just like tried to play the victim and shit. And it drives me fucking bananas. I couldn't even like watch any more of the stuff because it just she was like <laughs> i have to live with this yeah you fucking did it of course you have to live with it now what happened right because she never actually says what happened jessica testified that dylan was killed during a visit in march because she wasn't supposed to be living there so she was while dylan was there so she said that it happened while she was visiting once mm -hmm. um and jessica was found guilty and sentenced to life without the possibility of parole and Daniel was found, got life with a uh, possibility of parole after 47 years. And he's like in his 40s. So it's basically a death sentence. Um, I hope it is. Right. And the 15 year old is now living with his aunt. They haven't like, I mean, it's probably somewhere if I dug far enough to find the name of the 15 year old, but I, mm -hmm. I'm not going to share it for sure. Um, and I hope that he's getting the proper like therapy to deal with all this because clearly this was a weird household just, of shit it's so fucked up how they got rid of it like that's him so yeah like they made like a makeshift coffin and then dropped it into a well yeah because it was those you know those gated milk crates and it had like so during part of the prosecution's questioning uh jessica she goes how did the the 10 layers of saran wrap where did you get the materials for all of that i don't know must have been outside where did you get it you got it clearly and you did it where did you get them well it wasn't in my house that's for sure and then she gets like all attitude -y at her like a little teenage girl mm -hmm. it's like i'm not questioning you over something small you killed a human your son where you did you get a, your stuff you killed a baby i just can't Wait. It was one of those that I read the thing and I was like, you know, it just sucks that the, I feel like the system did what they were able to without knowing that he was falsifying his negative drug tests. But I wish there was a way, there was more due diligence done to make sure that things were followed the way they were supposed to. No, there, that was a failure of the system because when yes. I had my drug test for work, the lady walked me into the bathroom, patted me down to, and I mean, this was for a corporate job. This was not like to yeah. pick up a small child. I had to go into a bathroom. I had to wear, they told me not to wear baggy clothes. They patted me down, even though I was wearing leggings and I had to lift my shirt so they could look and check my Make waistband sure and my pants pouch. and everything. Yeah. And then I had to pee in the cup, 
pee into the toilet and then not flush the toilet. Yep. They had to watch me wash my hands both times. Yep. Like there was. I Mine was almost exact. I didn't get patted down, but I did have to have like. It was a male nurse that faced outward so that he didn't watch me pee, but I had mm-hmm. to pee into the cup, pee some into the toilet so that they you know that it actually toilet. happened. Yeah. And test in they test the toilet too. Yeah. So I'm like, definitely I just it just makes me so mad and it makes me want to do something, but I don't know what to do, don't know how to go about doing stuff. I know that it's like social workers in general are like overworked and underpaid. And I think you should have to do a blood test, not a urine test. I agree. Like straight up drawn from you. It should be blood, hair, and urine. Because all of those things can tell you the last time you had drugs. Especially for stuff like that. For a kid? Yeah. Yeah. No, you lose all rights to privacy when you're fucking high as a kite trying to take care of your children. Blood, hair, urine. When you birth a kid who is addicted to meth. Right. I just... Get the fuck out of here. Yeah, no, I just want to... <laughs> so many violent actions I want to take on these people. Because mm-hmm. it's just, it's not fair. And that poor 15-year-old who, like, just tried to, like, go by the word of his parents. And, mm-hmm. like, I'm just here. I'm trying to live my own... I'm sure he pretty much is raising himself from the last few years when they got into drugs. Right. but yep that's the story of the death of dylan groves i'm sorry it was such a downer but again it's one of those things that i feel like needs to be talked about because people it it can't just be swept under the rug no it's something that it's a failure of our foster system and it's a failure of like child services and Mm -hmm. and even and it's just it sucks because it's like things need to be put into place that make it that force it to happen and that's not something that because there's plenty of plenty of like social workers and uh foster system people that are working in the system that would love to change it but they have to follow the guidelines that are put in front of them too Mm -hmm. so it's it's such a I'm not vilifying anybody other than the people that are directly being negligent and not paying attention Right. You know, ah, just one of those stories that I read and I was like, fucking A, it hurts my heart, but I feel like I need to share. Right. Don't worry, I'll, I'll have less sad, heartbreaking things in the future because I have my next two pretty well <laughs> lined up that I found. Nice. Yeah, yeah. All, all right. Well, thanks for listening. Yeah. Thanks, guys. You the you the best. You the this is a spread the word and spread your damn selves. Spread your damn self. <laughs> okay, well, uh, follow us and things, and yeah. uh, we'll we'll see it. We'll catch you on the flip side. Motherfucker. Oh. Okay, bye. Bye.